Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. In the November issue, Ryan Ruby explores Vladimir Nabokov's relationship to the city of Berlin, fatherhood, and time. Though Nabokov hated living in Germany, the Russian enclave of Hollensee was where he met his wife, Vera, wrote his first nine novels, and became a father. Ruby's own experience of living as an expat in Berlin and becoming a father for the first time there brought forth a series of insights into Nabokov's writing and thought process. We discuss those in this conversation, as well as Nabokov's uneasy legacy as the guy who wrote Lolita. So I wanted to start off, you know, you clearly read and reread Nabokov's fiction for this essay on fatherhood and his relationship with time. Do you remember your first experience of reading Nabokov? And, and do you remember being struck by his ideas about time at the time? Um, the first time I, I read Nabokov was, I was very, very young. I was, I think I was 14 and it was... Oh my God, uh, really? Yeah, it was... This is, no, you know, it's crazy because the first time I read Nabokov, or as you correctly say, Nabokov, I was like 12 because I had seen a segment on like Inside Edition about Amy Fisher, the Long Island Lolita. And I was like, what's a Lolita? Uh, indeed. <laughs> and and for, me, for me also, as I suspect for, for many people, uh, the first Nabokov is, was for me was also, uh, was also Lolita. Um, yes. Uh, whereupon, uh, at, at age 14, I was not concerned with the problem of time <laughs> at all. Uh, <laughs> um, yes, I, 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 I distinctly, I distinctly recall, of course, uh, about that book was uh, was a eye-opening book for me for for a number of reasons. But the the major reason was uh, was just that sort of awe one often feels when first encountering Nabokov, which is that one reads uh, this this exquisite prose and, and did not before imagine that such a thing could be possible um, mm-hmm. uh, in in fiction and it, it opens it opens up a sense of uh, of possibility and it was uh, around this particular time actually that I, I dated my first interest in in becoming a, mm-hmm. a writer interesting yeah no I remember being like, you can put foreign words in the sentence. Yeah. What are all the, what's this French? What is what is all of this? I mean it was it it is like a you're right, you're kind of your head kind of explodes for a variety of reasons if you're fooling around with Lolita at fourteen or twelve or whenever. But I mean, you know, how would you say your relationship with Nabokov has changed over time? I mean, the the obviously <laughs> we are both we are both far removed from that teen slash preteen phase. So I think, with regard to Lolita in particular, although that's uh, not the subject of the piece, I've subsequently read Lolita three or four times, and on each, as Nabokov very famously has this um, uh, idea that, of course, a book cannot be read; it can only be reread. Uh, and mm. that was certainly true for both uh, Lolita and the, the the differences in my readings of that particular book over time have changed very, very radically as I've grown older. Um, and I think that's an integral part of the uh, experience of that particular book, but also with the with the book that was 
the center of this piece, which was mm -hmm. The Gift, um, which was his last Russian novel. And I read that first in 2008. I was, I was just thinking about when was that I first read this. And it didn't really um, feature for me. Uh, it didn't really appear back on my radar screen. It didn't, didn't strike me in any way. It was just sort of, um, I would not have rated it as very important compared to uh, Pale Fire or Otto or Ardor. Mm -hmm. um, and... Oh, it's only upon um, moving to Berlin, really, um, and rereading that while here, uh, uh, that that book sort of opened itself up for me. And of course, the other book for, for which that is true, which also features very much in this piece, is is Speak Memory, his uh, his autobiography or his memoir. Uh, and I read that again. I read that when I was. I think first time I read that was when I was in my early twenties, and of course I, I, I admired it. I admired it greatly, but this the sort of um, last time I reread this, and this is what the the piece recounts, was on the day my son was born, uh, or the evening of of that day, and that book then totally rewrote itself for me because uh, the the part that I was interested in my my first reading. Of that was his, you know, description of his description of his youth and his, uh, you know, early development as a writer. But of course, when I read it in this new context with um, the, this new experience of becoming uh, a parent, the the part of that book that that popped out to me and became important to me was that last chapter in which he describes both the birth and raising of his young son uh, Dimitri. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's easy to forget that Nabokov was a father. Um, and I was so kind of surprised to learn that fatherhood had such a big impact on his writing life. So was there research you did about Nabokov's role as a parent that didn't make it into the piece? I mean, did he enjoy parenting or did it just simply seem to suit him? Well, I... I think I think both. Uh, to be to be honest, like he is one of these people, um, as as speak memory details the this, this, this description of his own child. He um, is miraculous. He seems to have a, a just a golden treasured childhood. He he grew up in an, in extreme luxury, and he was doted upon um, by his mother. But he was also very well. He had very fond it was very fond of his father and very much looked up to his father um and that relationship um was very important to him throughout his life and it appears all over his work uh his father comes to a a tragic end he's he's murdered um yeah uh, assassinated uh really uh, by by accident and that event reappears itself like a trauma throughout throughout his work he was he's extremely fond of both of his parents um and he was seems very interested um, with Vera, his wife, um, to mm -hmm. have uh, provided a very um, similar childhood for for his own son, Dimitri. And the part of you know Dimitri's sort of uh, youth um, sort of does does have does does make it into the piece a little bit but Dimitri goes on um to be an opera singer 
and a race car driver and adventurer and what a hell of yeah, a life. Yeah, he lived a hell of a life. And then yeah, and then he he's also he's also his father's translator. Uh, and he right. later, after Vera dies, becomes the caretaker of the the Nabokov estate. And and it, the impression that you get from Dimitri is that he too also was very fond of his father. Um, the uh, Vladimir and Vera went to go see his concerts and were very proud of uh, their son's uh, achievement as a um, as an opera singer. And I think he was he was involved in I think a, either it was either a uh, a car crash or an, a mountaineering uh, accident, and both, you know, Vera and Vladimir are, are extremely nervous about this sort of daredevil life that he has all throughout his <laughs> his uh, you know twenties and thirties, um, and so they seem to have had a pretty pretty decent relationship there. Or from what we know, there doesn't seem to have been much you know, like uh, competition or one-upsmanship taking place uh, between them. And and the parents seem to have allowed or been, you know, open to um, Dimitri leading his own life and becoming his own person, which I think is a, a, a really good test of a, of a <laughs> successful parenting uh, relationship, parent-child relationship. Yeah. And I mean, how do you feel that... Nabokov's happy childhood influenced his writing. You know, obviously, we're talking about the opera singer, race car driving son who actually has a really sweet relationship with his father, which sort of goes against the stereotype. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's the other stereotype that writers need to have suffered deeply in order to write richly or sensitively. Yeah, I think that um, for, for Nabokov, the loss of his childhood... Um, so he has this, he has this sort of, uh, you know, utopian or Edenic rather. He has this Edenic childhood in pre-Row. <laughs> He's born in 1899 and uh, the, the world into which he is born so, sort of ends for him in, in 1917 with, with the Russian Revolution. Um, and he and the family leave, uh, leave Russia and, Nabokov never returns. And so there's a sense in which this happy childhood is very much connected to uh, a specific place in a specific time that is gone from history. And that nostalgia and pining for um, both that, that sort of pre-revolutionary culture as well as, you know, for, for, the, for the Russian language. Of course, he goes on to mm -hmm. become, a, as the reason we, we all are we, uh, when I say English speakers are interested in him, is because he goes on to be an exemplary, one of the greatest English language writers. But for him, you know, that represents something of a loss, right? He loses his his uh, his everyday Russian, and he's confined to first an emigre world in Berlin and Paris, and then in the United States. Um, and so, for him, the the loss of childhood, this the Halcyon childhood, the culture the world in which he grew up is very present in, in all of his books. Um, and specifically, you know, one thinks of the portrayal of, um, uh, of the, of the childhood of, of the, the Veen, uh, twins and Ada or Arter, uh, is, is a good example. Mm -hmm. Or of course, and again, in speak memory, uh, his mother is said, is said, he reports that his mother tells him, 
that the the Russian children born before the revolution are gifted with extraordinary memories as compensation for the for the life that they've lost uh, in Russia, so that they can preserve this sort of childhood uh, memory and of this of this country in their minds and take it with them um, outside of the country itself. It's interesting to think of Nabokov in those terms as more of like a Stefan Zweig mm. figure mm. as opposed to, you know, the guy who wrote Lolita, which is an idea we can come back to later. But I mean, when you were researching this, were there other stories or poems that you read or reread while, uh, you know, writing this that surprised you or sort of changed your your understanding of Nabokov's writing? So what I did, and primarily for the for the research and what I got really interested in, and I've I've been living in Berlin for about uh, a little over eight years now, almost nine years, and it's you know uh, he is one of the sort of more prominent uh, Berlin. Berlin has attracted in in its time, and especially at that time, um, that time being the twenties and thirties, a number of exile, emigre, expatriate uh, writers. Um, who are either there permanently or in and out of there. Um, and he's a sort of big figure, but I, I, I hadn't really, um, until, until I was writing this piece, really gone back through uh, Nabokov's sort of early work and with the sort of my knowledge of the city in mind as I was reading it. And I think that, that one of the, in a way it sounds, I, it's surprising, it was surprising to me um, but it should be less, sort of less surprising in retrospect since, A, this is what all novelists do. Is, you know, they're, they're in an environment and uh, they're drawing details and sensory experiences from their environment. But just how much, because Nabokov is famously said to have very much disliked Berlin, very much disliked Germany, <laughs> but um, so, much, so much of his experience here uh, down to the very sort of minutest details, um, really works its way into the fiction of his sort of quote-unquote Russian period, Russian language period. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, uh, you know, it's all over the short stories, which I, I hadn't read um, before sitting down to to write this. And I, I was reading them with this sort of eye of, okay, um, so uh, Nabokov later, when he's a, a professor at Cornell, and he's teaching Ulysses, he tells his students that what's really important to understanding Ulysses is you just sit down and you make a map, as it were, of Dublin and where you have to mm-hmm. figure out where uh, Bloom goes on his on his trip in Ulysses. And so I, I sort of did the same thing with all of the, the Russian novels of his that I read and the short stories that I read. I was just picking out little details about, um, about Berlin uh, that sort of appeared there. Uh, and I noticed, you know, just sort of little features and facets of everyday life uh, that when I f- had read these in, in, in the U.S. before I moved here, I just, they just totally passed me by. They, they didn't seem relevant to me at all. But now they take on a sort of special relevance. Um, just to give one example, um, or, or say two examples, uh, the the gift opens up on uh, April 1st, uh, 1920 dash, and it's really, it's 1926. Um, and April 1st is, of course, April Fool's Day, and and much of the sort of jocular sort of 
topsy-turvy world character Rene Berfull's day uh, is central to that novel. But it begins with the story, uh, this description of a moving van. Um, and the letters in the moving van are, are, are described as sort of trying to leap off the side of the van um, <laughs> and uh, as a sort of like, you know, as the idea is getting eternity on the cheap. I'm, I'm poorly paraphrasing his his much typically much more lyrical and precise uh, figure. But uh, April April 1st um, is a big moving day in Berlin. And when uh, first of the month is usually traditionally the day that you move here. Uh, and uh, April 1st is a, a big one because it's, it's, the, it's the first day. It's, it's spring. It's when the contracts uh, get renewed. And so on April 1st, it's just a day that you see all around the city of Berlin to this very day, um, people in the sort of crazy throes of moving things. And there are, the streets are sort of filled with people getting in and out of vans and taking objects up and down stairs. And, and it has this sort of like carnivalesque quality to it. Um, mm -hmm. That is, you know, when you read that and you think about that, if you think about it at all, it's just either as a, as a sort of narrative pretext or as perhaps some kind of allegory of, of the, of the April Fool's Day, but actually it's a, it's a very everyday life in Berlin um, mm -hmm. occurrence. And you really notice that if you're not from the city, um, you really notice that differently from the way move-ins happen in, in New York, for example, where I, where I came mm -hmm. here from, which is much more sporadic. It's less a sort of like citywide event that sort of overtakes the city uh, and just sort of details like that. Um, uh, another example, the other example is there's this uh, scene later in the book in which uh, the um, protagonist, Fyodor's uh, mentor uh, and friend, uh, Chernyshevsky is his name, um, which is sort of important, but it's, his name is, is Chernyshevsky. He's an atheist. And he's on his deathbed and uh, he looks out the window of his, of, of his apartment as he's dying and he sees water coming down in front of his window. And he says, there's no afterlife just as sure as it is raining now outside my window. And Nabokov uh, or Fyodor, but Nabokov, the narrator, really sort of inserts a comment that what is actually happening is that the upstairs neighbor is watering her plants. <laughs> and it's just this beautiful, it's this beautiful, it's this, be it's this both beautiful and somewhat cruel observation um, that Nabokov makes at the expense of his character. Um, but the way a Berlin house is traditionally structured is that there are balconies uh, uh, outside every apartment. And on those balconies, there are always sort of rims where Germans like to have small little gardens. And so if you're walking through the city, one of the things that frequently happens to you is that you get, is you get rained on by people who are watering mm. their plants. And so there's a very, so just sort of like in, in New York, the, the sort of the feature of the, of the air conditioning unit in the window dripping. Uh, yes, the, the icky exactly. drip, yeah. <laughs> and that's the Berlin equivalent of that. And that's the, the sort of thing that comes from a very sort of detailed and fine perception of the sort of unique, in this case, architectural characteristics of this particular place that, um, right. yeah, that I, that I had never noticed as anything other than incidental detail um, 
before I moved here and came to see that that was in fact just a normal life, right? A really just sort of um, fortuitous and even gratuitous, uh, uh, (laughs) but in a lovely sort of way, right? So sort of superfluous and but wonderful capturing of, of, of ordinary life in, in this particular specific place. How would you describe Nabokov's theories about time? And are these ideas reflected in his best-known works? Uh, the, the thing that I become very interested in, in Nabokov in particular, is he starts to develop this sort of, let, let's call it eccentric, um, but charmingly eccentric, uh, views of, of time. Uh, and it becomes a major preoccupation of his, uh, and it's one of the, the sort of through lines throughout throughout his work. Um, and it appears sort of the earliest place I located, it was in the story, uh, A Guide to Berlin, uh, but it mm-hmm. appears in The Gift, in Speak Memory, and it really, um, it, the sort of best known consideration of it is in his uh, later work, Ada or Ardor, in which the protagonist of that book or the and the narrator of that book, uh, Van Veen, is a is a philosopher, and he goes on to write uh, um, a, a, a treatise um, called "The Texture of Time." Um, and around this time, so this is when this is later uh, in the '60s when uh, Nabokov is in living in Montreux um, in in this sort of a grand hotel with Vera uh, in Montreux. And he's, uh, at that period of time, he becomes interested in this sort of eccentric philosopher, uh, this little-known philosopher uh, by the name of J.W. Dunn, who writes a book called An Experiment with Time. And the uh, the theory of experiment of time uh, by Dunn is that dreams are precognitive. And so Nabokov mm-hmm. becomes a sort of recorder of his own dreams, uh, and hopes to find in them evidence of being able to predict uh, to predict the future. And of course, the notion that the future can be predicted suggests that the notion that the future already exists, sort of imminently existent. Um, mm-hmm. And these uh, these sort of dream narratives, people people have different views about them as sort of works of art. I, I find them to be very charming. He kept them all in his note cards, which he wrote. And the dream narratives are now collected in a book called Insomniac Dreams, uh, in which are supposed to provide the sort of primary evidence for this. But in each of these different periods in the, in the uh, you know, let's, let's, let's say starting with uh, A Guide to Berlin, but also moving through um, The Gift and on to Ader Arder, he sort of is evolving a non-linear sort of anti-normative conception of time. Uh, and in each of these books, it becomes... It's it's sort of hard to treat them as theories because they're obviously they're all theories evolved by the characters themselves, and so there's a degree of novelistic irony to each of them. Uh, but as as thought experiments, and so it's yeah. So the point being is that it's hard to ascribe them to Nabokov himself, um, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, uh, he has in in my view, I I think he took them more seriously than that sort of caveat would in, would entail because of course in speak memory in his autobiography, of course, he also talks about the sort of, uh, um, he also bookends this, this book with a sort of new idea about, 
new ideas about time, what time is, and essentially uh, to to be very very simplistic about it, the standard notion according to which uh, time is a simple progression from past to present to future is something he rejects uh, in each of these mm-hmm. versions um, of his of his characters' theories, and each of the characters are trying to find out. Uh, different ways of conceiving of uh, and reimagining time uh, as a kind of thing which is um, simultaneous, where past, present, and future are coexistent um, in ways that our standard idea of of time does not permit. Do you feel like his sort of obsession with his childhood or not obsession idealization of his childhood a sense of something lost that also sort of shaped that conception of time as something that is not necessarily linear and and fixed and certainly and if we if we take his if you take his view uh that i mean there's there's a there's a sense in which he's sort of in his fiction like reimagining uh, the world in which that that childhood continued um uh, and in one of the and and this produces both a sort of uh, an idealization. It's also sort of tinged with melancholy. So in one of his Russian books, Gift, he sends his protagonist sort of back into what we assume is a sort of suicide mission, back into the the, the Russia of his of his childhood. And this this sort of gesture repeats itself uh, very very frequently as a mode of um, as a sort of mode of both that memory that obviously the sort of standard thing you want to say is that of course uh, memory and Nabokov did have a tremendous memory for, for detail and recreating that detail in in his own literature. This is a way of preserving something that no longer exists. Uh, And the time itself, right? The theories of time, if you wanted to say that they served a sort of psychological function, they are the uh, working through of a sort of series of different possible worlds in which uh, lost possibilities, possibilities that were lost to him in particular, nonetheless, nonetheless can be believed to have their own independent and meaningful existence. Uh, and that if uh, we were, if we were to able, be able to consider uh, time differently, we would see that those are, are not foreclosed, but are still open possibilities that can be imaginatively experienced and joined. And I mean, does parenting allow you to connect with these ideas about time or does it influence your relationship with time in different ways? Uh, certainly. So in the, in the, in, in the piece itself, the, the sort of primary experience, uh, the sort of, uh, you know, uh, epiphany experience is that, both Nabokov, uh, both uh, I, upon coming home from the hospital uh, where uh, our son was born, and Nabokov, on, com- on coming home from the clinic um, where his son was born, uh, had this very uncanny experience, uh, which is uh, likened, in my view, to a kind of death, right? Sort of a death in life. And sort of the sort of the primary mover of, of this sort of piece, um, and what I sort of came to understand about Nabokov after having had this experience, is that one of the ways that we can look at our lives differently 
is as a, is not as a single thing which begins with birth and ends with death, but as a series of births and deaths that occur um, pretty much all the time. Uh, and you know, if you're a, if you're a philosopher of personal identity, uh, this is a sort of uh, sort of a, a common theme. And Nabokov explores it in, in a very with bringing all of his sort of literary verve to, to this sort of theme. And what happens at a moment like birth, and it's not just birth, other examples might include sort of any sort of experience in which you experience a change, a radical change in your life um, that turns you by virtue of that experience into a person with a sort of different, different sort of existential or uh, social status, as it were, right? So for example, like, um, like many cultures have a sort of adulthood ritual. So, uh, so I'm Jewish, so we have the, the bar bat mitzvah that, that happens, you know, confirmation, uh, you know, the, the ritual according to which an adolescent is regarded by the community as being an adult and the community gets together and proclaims this moment to happen. And in a way, what is happening there, the model event, the model ritual is a kind of funeral, right? Which is to say that the, the child dies and is reborn through this ritual, collective ritual as an adult. Um, and parenthood, in my experience, and I had this sort of shock experience of, of feeling this way, um, was very much like that. It really felt like an old self was dying, a new self had been born. And, and it occurred to me that this is the sort of experience that might be said to happen all the time, but we only notice it at these very, very sort of discrete sort of life milestone moments. Um, and in The Gift, uh, in particular, uh, the, the main character sort of uh, describes this, this particular series of events uh, that uh, are not parented, uh, but are um, the sense in which you pass on, that life is a completely a uh, series of passing on into a series of what uh, in the piece I call uh, following a, a Russian scholar, other worlds. And each of those things is happening all the time, but we find it difficult to see it because our notion of time is that time is sort of continuous without breaks until consciousness, sort of physical consciousness ends. Um, and anyway, so that's the, that's the, the sort of motivating experience of this piece is this sort of uncanny experience of feeling like one had by virtue of becoming a parent, the self that had previously not had a child um, was no longer there, but had gone on to some other existence while this other self with a child had then branched off into the existence, which I now experience on a regular daily basis as normal, but because it had not yet happened to me, because it had not become normalized to me, um, I could experience both worlds simultaneously and see that uh, both of these possibilities were open to now two different people, as it were. And that's the experience that Nabokov, I, I didn't know what words to put to it, but that's the experience also Nabokov describes when he comes home from the birth clinic where uh, Vera has just had Dimitri. Right. And I mean, it's it's interesting to hear you, you know, mention, you know, the Barbat Mitzvah confirmation. You know, these are religious sort of ceremonies of death, right? And of course, 
people love to have funerals. There's all sorts of death mm-hmm. rituals, but the, but having a having a child, it's a secular thing. It's not necessarily connected to the re- religious necessarily. So I guess, do you feel like the the decline of sort of you know as as society becomes more secular, that we could perhaps recognize these these events, these life events as perhaps more, you know, as ceremonies and reclaim ceremony in some way or, or, or sort of understand them differently because it seems like, I don't know, (laughs) everything, you know, as, as we become less religious, we also lose those nice sort of necessary, you know, well, you can lose those moments of ceremony and celebration and perhaps acknowledgement that something has changed yeah uh or something is special totally um i i would say that i i'm of the view that uh actually we have a lot more than in our in our sort of secular society than we than we tend to give uh than we tend to give credit for the, the other big one of course i which i should obviously mention is i i it never happened to me but Marriage is another very common one in which this Mm -hmm. occurs. And of course, marriage runs the full gamut of, uh, of, you know, sort of possible religious interpretations uh, or not. Right. So you, you can, you know, do that particular ritual, that communitarian ritual in a number of, of different ways. But I think our secular society actually has a lot of these. They're just not recognized as such. Uh, and I'll give you I'll give you an example. The the first time this occurred to me, um, I'll say this because I was I was listening to your podcast, your recent podcast on on Christopher Hitchens, and actually Christopher Hitchens was once, who's obviously a notorious atheist, uh, was once uh, was once asked this question uh, at a I, I went to a, a reading or a debate of his, and he was once asked this question, and he said it was like oh. Uh, no, we'll have we have rituals in secular society as well. For example, you're at a reading, um, and afterwards you will go through the ritual of signing the book uh, of me signing your book, um, <laughs> and and you know the, it was it was kind of a you know a cheeky buy my book plug at, at the time. Um, but also, I thought I think it's kind of a a, a a worthwhile observation in a more general sense. That is indeed a, a, a ritual, which we do not think of as a ritual. Um, and it has, it has sort of a series of codes of behaviors that takes place in public. Um, people get together to do it. Um, oh, but it's, a, it's tied to capitalism. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, <laughs> so like Black Friday is like the big secular gross sure, sure. Uh, ceremony. Okay. <laughs> Um, I wish to disavow. No, I, I'm. Uh, I, I agree with you. T- tied to capitalism is a much more difficult uh, thing to argue around. But how? Oh, totally. <laughs> but how, how, how about how about this? Um, how about the ritual of uh, the dinner party, mm, uh, or, okay. or or more generally the party, uh, the birthday party, yeah. uh, where you and a group of friends get together to engage in a collective activity. Uh, on a particular time for a particular occasion, whatever that occasion may happen, happen to be, whether it's like it's the weekend and so we're not working or it's someone's birthday or someone has had something good happen to them or, you know, just because you feel like it, right? Uh, and you want to be in a space in which, you know, you come over. Um, there are codes of behavior uh, that are involved and, you know, 
parties are great. Parties produce a sort of, you know, ecstatic sense of, of communality um, and a sort of sense that you're actually stepping out of time, right? That you're, you're taking, you're removing yourself from uh, the work of the rhythms of labor, uh, the rhythms of um, sort of, you know, capitalist work life and are enjoying a sort of, hopefully to the greatest degree possible, you know, and sort of non-commodified interaction with persons you care about. Um, and that we don't think of as a, as a, as a ritual, but it bears many of the, of the features that we usually take as rituals. Um, and so one of the things about the sort of secularization hypo- hypothesis says is, is that while I agree, like it, it is much, it is much clearer that, uh, religious societies and religious modes of living are organized around these, explicitly organized uh, around these um, major uh, life rituals, uh, which are subdivided, of course, throughout the year. Um, but I would, I would, I would go and argue that 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 at least occurs implicitly in secular society as well. And as a as a sort of you know secular person myself, that it would, I think, it would be worth actually. Um, taking some time to be, you know, explicit and conscious about about the fact that this is a kind of ritual. That there are many of these sort of ritual events that are um, occurring all the time in our lives, and I only because and I think the virtue of the consciousness is is I think it would give it an, uh, you know gives it a little extra zest and spice. You know, uh, it actually makes it more fun, right? To think that you know because actually. Uh, you know, a party is not a frivolous thing. A party is a very important thing. Uh, a party is a um, a wonderful experience, and it's something that you know. You go to a party, you you meet people at a at a party, and you're and indeed, right? Everyone has has had this experience. You meet a person in, at a party, and you didn't expect that they would be there, but because of the sort of conviviality of the environment and space. You go on to befriend that person, and then you know that person for the rest of your life. And you, you go to that person's funeral, or that person comes to your funeral, and all that happens. And you would be a totally different person had you not had this sort of collective birth into this new relationship. Um, and so, I think that the value of the sort of the the lesson here, if if one had to be, so uh, you know. Uh, I, if I had to be so vulgar about it, was that what, what, what Nabokov was is, is sort of suggesting to us is that, um, in fact, it's worthwhile to to have a sort of that we're presented with one way of looking at at the world, uh, and one sort of in his case it's a sort of particular chronological or chronotopic regime, um, and we take it for granted. Uh, but in that chronotopic regime, if you look for different sort of patterns and describe it differently and describe it at a, at a different level of intensity, you will discover that, in fact, these sort of things that seem banal are, in fact, very uh, pregnant with meaning and are very um, charged with meaning. And I think that that's very true for for our lives. For our lives, we just don't look at them like this. Yeah. No, I mean... FOMO is yeah. real. Uh, don't RSVP unless you really mean it, because it could change your, could change your life. life right? do, it's do true. You ever, you ever go to? A, yeah, I mean, I, I recall uh, back when I was going to more parties, you would you would have that that beautiful sense of anticipation. You'd be like, Who, "What yeah. will happen to me on this particular night?" Like, 
And on uh, many of those nights, something, you know, hopefully good happens. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and it, it changes your life forever. And I think everyone's had that experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess I'd, I'd want to close on perhaps a, a far less metaphysical, far more boring question of what do you make of the fact that Nabokov is kind of just the Lolita guy? Uh, I'm actually really glad In you asked this. Um, <laughs> good. Uh, no, very good. Um, so, again, the, this sort of piece pretty much totally avoids the question of Lolita uh, whatsoever. Um, and I think one of the things that I one of the things that I learned from from really sort of systematically going through uh, his early work um, was that I have a new thought about Nabokov as the Lolita guy, right? So the the vast majority of people I would uh, imagine who read Nabokov read Lolita first, sort of like both of us, right? We both read Lolita first. It's the big hit, right? Um, and the, the vast majority of those people, um, you know, I, that will, that will be all of Nabokov that they read. Um, and, uh, otherwise there, there will be sort of scatterings of reading of, of Nabokov. And I think that Lolita reads very, very differently, uh, when, uh, when two things happen. One when you realize that it's his 12th book, right? Um, so we encounter it usually as his first book, but in fact, it's his 12th book that, that he writes. And of course, um, as I was saying earlier, um, uh, the vast majority of people will only read Lolita once. And the book, of course, changes once you start to read it multiple times. Uh, and it becomes a very different book on your third read than it is on your first read. Um, and so these two particular factors of the sort of very contingent way that we receive this particular author and this particular book determines a lot of the discussion about it, um, mm. in, in my view. And that discussion would look very, very differently uh, if uh, uh, once it's read as a sort of mid-career piece, and once it is read multiple times by a reader over the course of their life. So um, uh, the, I, my, my general impression of the, of, the, of the reading of Lolita is that, um, or the, the sort of, the, the way it, 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 Lolita enters discourse is that um, it, is, uh, it is an immoral book. Right. Yes. Um, and this, uh, and, and and then then of course the, as as the discourse flattens out, as readings sort of flatten out, we come to sort of see that uh, as uh, as the there there is in our time and place of uh, a flattening of protagonist and uh, an author, uh, which one sees. Oh, and and if and if somebody likes the book, there's also a flattening there yes. too. <laughs> and so uh, I, I will say I will say two things. One is um, the the this is intentional. I, I so I believe that that what 
Nabokov is doing is intentional here. And the idea is, is that when you read Lolita at 14, as I did, um, and if you, especially, I, you know, I'm male, right? So I identify with Humbert Humbert. And there's this like at, at 14, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And you're like... Which is probably the safest right? age. And, and the same, <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. So Lolita gets introduced in that book. Uh, Dolores Hayes gets introduced in that book as a 12-year-old, right? And mm-hmm. so you have... And on the back of my uh, vintage edition, I think it's Edmund Wilson who says, this is the the only true or the truest love story of the 20th century, right? Yes. Which is also an extremely misleading thing to say about this book. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. <laughs> and so what happens is, is that you, the reader, especially if you're a young reader, you are being, sedu- you are being seduced by Humbert Humbert. And what is happening mm-hmm. to you is that you are taken uh, uh, in, with this miraculous and incredible, or as he says, fancy pro style, you are being taken in. And the idea is, is that you are being treated to a pro style that allows you to ignore what is happening in the book, which is an act of extreme cruelty. Um, mm-hmm. And so you're seduced by that and you are, inclined on the grounds that it's beautiful prose to forgive it. And that is an, an immoral thing to do. Uh, and once you read it again as an adult uh, in your 20s and then in your 30s, you come to understand that that is precisely the point. Um, you are you are you are being asked to take the side of someone who has done something wrong. The author knows that it's wrong, um, and we know that the author knows that it's wrong. And here comes the the previous point about it being his twelfth book, um, is that his his biographer Brian Boyd calls one of the themes of Nabokov's writing the uh, automaton theme, and one thing that mm. frequently occurs in many of the books, um, whether it's King Queen Knave or whether it's laughter in the dark, uh, or whether it's the defense, is that people are reduced to automatons. Um, They are, the the immoral thing that happens, the cruel thing that happens is that the characters in those books become less than human. They become objects to be manipulated by someone uh, in a, who has more power than them in that particular situation. And the absolute apotheosis of the automaton theme is in Lolita, where, mm-hmm. uh, where Humbert Humbert um, destroys Dolores Hayes's life, molests uh, her, rapes her, and grooms her, and essentially imprisons her, right? Um, yeah. And what you have here... Right, and just uh, well, actually, when we were, when we were working on the on the drafts of this this book, my my edit, the editor asked me, just like, do we want to consider this?" Because what we have here is a parent child relationship, right? Which is that Humbert marries right. Dolores's mother in order to perform this act of cruelty on her, um, and so what we had there is a, a sort of. Uh, immoral mirror of this, his own very happy relationship with his own child, right? And so because of this, um, in this book, what Nabokov is writing is in fact, 
the thing that he thinks is the most immoral thing. Mm. Um, and this particular uh, important relationship to him is shown in the absolute most degraded, cruel, immoral light. Uh, and that's, a, that's something that becomes clear when you sort of have read through Nabokov's work and see that this is a thing that he's preoccupied with. And it becomes clear when you cease to identify with, with Humbert Humbert, when you become old enough to see that art can be used to excuse, exonerate, or convince you that cruelty is acceptable because artists are somehow superior people. Right or are mm. in Humbert's case, he's he's much more cultured than everybody else, and he likes to he likes to show, show it. it right. <laughs> and the, the reason, so okay, right. So there's this big question about what is the relationship between Nabokov and, and Humbert. And for those for those of you who uh, for the the listeners who are still unconvinced by by the fact that I that or by this interpretation of Nabokov criticizing Humbert. Uh, it is worth also remembering a final thing, which is that uh, the way we know that Nabokov knows that he's doing something wrong is also, or that and that Humbert is in fact a real bad dude, uh, is also the other thing that he does, which is never a feature of discourse about uh, about Lolita. Mm-hmm. Humbert is in trouble because he killed somebody, right? He's a, he's, a, he's a murderer, right? He says at the beginning. He's a literal murderer. a literal murderer. murderer. <laughs> now, the person he shoots is a pretty despicable person, but nonetheless. Um, uh, but, that, but that's interesting, right? So uh, it, it, we are exclusively, and we, I mean, as a culture, and rightly so, because this is the, the kernel of the story, right? We are exclusively focused on the crime that Humbert commits against Loris Hayes. But the other crime mm-hmm. that he commits is that he's a murderer, and it is... Uh, while the the energy is spent focusing on whether to what degree Nabokov endorses Humbert's behavior, uh, this comes at the expense of the very obvious and apparently easy to miss detail that he is, uh, yeah, he murdered somebody. And it is hard to argue that um, Nabokov endorses that. Um, but this should key us in, I think, to uh, the the great the the distance between Nabokov and Humbert, and Humbert is a is a cautionary tale about what happens to you if you are so intellectually talented that you forget that people are, are autonomous from you, and that they deserve to yeah. live their own lives without you stepping uh, on them or torturing them or being cruel to them uh, or turning them, as I've said, into automatons. Um, right. And, and as such, sorry to be long winded here, but as such, no, uh, no, this is an important yeah. thing. Cause it's good. I mean, it's just like one of those things that pops up every, like, like we've ne- like this conversation never. has never happened before. <laughs> yeah. No, it just, I just, I just, I just want to, it's just like for me, uh, since I, since I hold this in opinion and it's an opinion that I've, I've only been able to develop after reading this book multiple times, um, because I, I, I believe that I was tricked the first time I read it, right? I was tricked into endorsing mm-hmm. the behavior. And um, in, a, in another context, as it were, because um, I, I was too young and immature to understand what was going on. Um, and so I think that it's, it's important because he, Nabokov, seduces you, the reader, into potentially endorsing that behavior too. And into saying, you too 
could look at the world this way and you ought not to do so. Um, and if you think you're better than that, you think you're above that, you would never do that. But here, look, I am, I'm presenting you a scenario where I, using the magic of language, uh, the most beautiful thing I have at my disposal, have gotten you to endorse something very cruel and awful in a fictional setting. Uh, that is the thing that can happen to you in 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 life as well, and that you, you want to be on guard for that uh, in life. Yes, uh, being suspicious of the things you like is perhaps the best way to live your life, the safest way <laughs> to live your life, or the things that you are taken in by. Because again, I think you know as you're saying. Don't trust your instincts. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> it's like not it's or, or or what society tells you is valuable is the most important thing. You know the idea that uh, I mean I, I you know you saw this during kind of like some 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 uh, uh, outer circles of the Trump discourse the idea or or you know um, with the Biden cabinet right where it's like the, the 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 contrast between those two cabinets it's like well Larry Summer. Larry Summer is the most credentialed man. He's the most—he's the best man for the job, and yet he's terrible. <laughs> he's awful. Ben Bernanke. All these people have the greatest educations possible. They're so smart. Yeah. And yet they're terrible. And the idea that a smart person, a well-spoken person, can be terrible—that's a really important thing to keep in mind, uh, because otherwise you're going to be taken yeah. in. And what I'll just say is that the, what what makes Lolita on on this reading, right, on the sort of moralistic reading. That, that it's a pro-moralistic uh, uh, a book is that it's the, the, the genius of it is that it is that it, it doesn't just tell you this it provides you the experience of it um, yes and that it uh, provides you the experience of it and then on the, your second reading you feel a little bit shamed for having been taken in and that uh, yeah and then then you can identify it and to each of us each of us are susceptible for to, you know to different things right to different excuses for cruelty right and that depends on our personalities um mm -hmm. uh, again credentialing uh it, intelligence um maybe one of them there are uh numerous dozens of others we can think of but if you're the sort of person who like me right is 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 someone who uh you know for whom uh, uh, you know, literary power is one of those things, right? Mm -hmm. This is a, it was a, an incredibly useful experience to me to have the, both the highest degree of literary power allied to that particular temptation, right? So that you could have that experience of knowing that it was within you to have this gem, this delightful thing that you love so much, uh, be the mm. potential source of something that is um, inhuman, or a, let's say, let's call it a human, right? Um, mm. And that within you is the potential to be seduced into cruelty, um, and that I think that that's true for all. That that we could say that that's a pretty widespread uh, human experience and temptation. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so, what Nabokov does is he tempts you into doing it, right? It's a sort of, and again, I'm using religious terminology here, right? There's the, you're being <laughs> tempted into to sin, right? And the sin here is- right. well, moralism, makes, uh, morality exists outside of religion. Yeah, yeah, of course. Right. And this is like a, one of those those things, right? Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, and 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 that's what makes up, I, I, so I think that the, the, the reason that, that book is 
is justifiably regarded as as a, as the masterpiece that it is is not merely because of the um, uh, not merely because of the pro style, which is of course um, tremendous, one of the greatest pro styles ever committed to paper, but precisely because of the experience. Uh, the cycle of experience uh, it generates in a reader over over multiple readings, um, and the way that that book lives with you and instructs you, and tricks you, and tempts you, and seduces you, uh, and then ultimately you know sort of shames you um, as well. And that's all part of its all part of its grand sort of artistic power, and it is the sort of thing that really truly great art is. Is, is capable of doing. And I think both the both the critique of this book um, as a sort of, um, as, you know, Nabokov uh, passing off Humbert Humbert as, a, as a, a figure of sympathy and the critique of, uh, and the critique of that sort of very vulgar and Philistine view that it's a sort of pure question of artistic license, both make the same error, uh, which is that it is in fact, it's not an either or, it's a, it's a both thing. And mm-hmm. that's what makes it truly transcendent work of art. Absolutely. Well, thank you for clearing that up. Uh, uh, everyone uh, everyone on Twitter who's mad about this, listen to this part yeah, again. I, I, it's very important. I, 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 I honestly, <laughs> I, I'm really glad you gave me the opportunity to, to make my little pitch about, uh, about no, this. I, I would love nothing more than to never hear this conversation again. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a thing. It's just like there are certain topics that it's like. To, do you really think no one has brought this criticism before? Yeah. <laughs> do you really think you're the first person to have this thought? Like, do a little, do just take that extra step and maybe just check and see if maybe there's a whole body, whatever. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll just I'll just sit I, here being I, I, vibrating furiously. I, 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 <laughs> As much as I've said that, I'm I'm very pessimistic that this will indeed be the last time that this this uh, <laughs> this particular thing has happened. But I I do regard this I I do regard this as the definitive answer to the question. Okay, good, <laughs> so. good. No, well, to to quote another uh, uh, philosopher of time, time is a flat circle, so we will be having this conversation again. Yes, but <laughs> Russ Cole, not not Nietzsche, indeed. Russ Cole. I was going to uh, say from True Detective yeah. season one. Eternal, eternally, many times <laughs> we will have this conversation. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. It was a a real real pleasure. pleasure. I enjoyed You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Madeline Crum, with production assistance by Ian Montgani. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save.